Well, open your Bibles with me and turn with me to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. And as you can see, the title of today's Bible study is Prepared to Die. Prepared to Die. So if you have your Bibles, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We will be reading the entire chapter. And forgive me in advance, I am going to stumble as we read the genealogies and all the names in verse 8 to 27. So Genesis chapter 46, beginning in verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shael, the sons of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Ishakar, Tola, Puva, Yab, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Zared, Zion, and Jahiel. These are the sons of, e- of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Panamaram together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Zipion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Erai, Aranai, and Aralai, <laughs> the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvai, Baria, with Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zippah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Besher, Ashbel, Jerah, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mumpim, Hupim, and Arn, 
These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, or the son of Dan, Hushim, and the sons of Naphtali, Jezreel, Gunai, Jezer, and Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Please be seated. Are you prepared to die? Well, on April 20th, 1964, in his trial in South Africa, Nelson Mandela testified. During my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of the democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunity. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if it needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Well, in this chapter, in chapter 46, we are going to see how Jacob becomes prepared to die. So, if you're still with me, let's go back to Genesis chapter 46, and we're going to divide the chapter into five sections. First, we'll see that Jacob worshipped in the first four verses. Then Jacob believed in verse 5 to 7. Next, we'll see Jacob surrounded in verse 8 to 27. Jacob reunited in verse 28 to 30. And then finally, Jacob settled in verse 31 to 34. So back in Genesis chapter 46, beginning in verse one, look with me as I read the first verse. So Israel took his journey, all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. Even that first word, so, is what some people call a marker of consequence, and it connects this chapter with the previous chapter. 
And the last verse of the previous chapter, Joseph said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So in motivation that he wants to see Joseph, his son, one final time, he decides, let's pack everyone, all his, his wives, his sons, daughters, his entire household, and they are to travel to, or to Egypt. Now, during this time, Jacob was likely in Hebron. Hebron is probably the city that he was living in. That was where Isaac had settled in. And so when he had come back with his four wives and 11 children, they had settled to Hebron. And so they pack all their bags and they leave Hebron and they go south and then west to Egypt. They come to Beersheba and Beersheba is the city that is basically in the southern tip of Canaan. And Beersheba is an important place for Jacob. In fact, it's a very important place for his entire family. The city of Beersheba was originally named by his grandfather, Abraham. Abraham had a dispute with Abimelech. And then in Genesis chapter 21, verse 30 and 31, we saw that Abraham made an oath with Abimelech. And they made an oath and they sacrificed seven lambs as a sign of agreement that Abimelech would acknowledge that Abraham had dug the well in the place that they were having this dispute. The name Beersheba actually means well of seven or well of oath. And so later, even in Genesis chapter 22, we learn that Abraham settles in Beersheba. A few chapters later, Isaac, after he has a dispute with water supply, he goes back to Beersheba to dig a well and not only does he dig a well in Beersheba, but he builds an altar. He builds an altar to worship God in Beersheba. When Jacob is on his way to go north to Haran after the dispute that he had with Esau, he leaves his family in Beersheba and he is sent off by, by Isaac. And so now, he gathers his family, they leave Hebron, they go south, and the very last city, the, the southern tip of Canaan, is Beersheba. And what does Jacob do? He, he's obviously in a rush, they've got wagons, and I'm sure he's eagerly anticipating going to Egypt, but we see here that he pauses. And what does he do? Look back at verse one. So Israel, he takes his journey, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. He comes to Beersheba. This is the place where his father, Isaac, had built an altar. And he pauses another time to worship God. And the two words in Hebrew that's translated offered sacrifices, this construction is used six times in, in the Pentateuch, in the Torah. And the five other times that it's used, primarily in Exodus and Leviticus, it's used to describe offering a peace offering 
or a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So this is not an offering that's primarily due to confession of sin, guilt. It is worship of thanksgiving and praise. So Jacob here is offering a sacrifice of peace, of fellowship, of gratitude. But I feel like this worship must be mixed with an element of doubt and uncertainty. And look what happens in verse 2. So he's worshiping God. He's offering sacrifice of peace, of gratitude to God. And in verse 2, it says, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. God had been silent to Jacob, perhaps for over 20 years. God had appeared to Jacob on a number of occasions, but he'd been silent for all this time. And I'm sure Jacob must have thought to himself, this is probably the right thing to do. I'm going to Egypt for the right desires, but is this the right thing to do? He doesn't stay in Hebron and just wait and just say, I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to wait for God's timing. He will make himself known. He takes action. He takes action in faith because he trusts in God, but he doesn't still know exactly if this is truly God's moral will for him. But in verse 2, God finally appears. He doesn't appear to Jacob in Hebron. He appears to Jacob in Beersheba after Jacob is already beginning his worship and his offering of sacrifice. I think it's interesting that during the time of Jacob that God would typically reveal himself in one of three ways. So the first way we are very familiar with, he can appear and give special revelation in the form of a dream. And there are two types of dreams. There's the dream that's symbolic and nebulous, perhaps, and requires interpretation. And then there are also dreams where the meaning of the dream is quite clear. When God appears in a dream, he is giving special revelation, but that is probably the least intimate of special revelation. There's a second type of revelation that God will occasionally give, and that's in the form of theophany, that he appears in some sort of human physical form. Jacob experienced that because when Jacob was accosted and was wrestling in Genesis chapter 32, we believe that he was wrestling with God. But there's a third way that God will reveal himself, and he reveals himself in a third way in the form of a vision. Now, you read correctly if you read with me in verse 2. It says in the ESV, and God spoke to Israel in visions, plural, visions of the night. The reason that sometimes in the Hebrew that the plural is used, like in this case, is it's to highlight the intensity. It's to highlight its significance. So it's not that God appeared to Jacob and then leaves, comes back, a second vision, a third vision. This is one vision, but it's a vision of importance, of intensity. And so what's the first thing that God says? God says to Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. 
He often does this when he appears to a person, especially when that person wasn't expecting the appearance of God. God appeared to Abraham and would say, Abraham, Abraham. In Exodus chapter 3, you remember in the burning bush, when Moses approached the burning bush, God spoke, Moses, Moses. When I read this, I asked a question. Why did God use the name Jacob, Jacob? In verse 1 of chapter 46, Jacob here is referred to as Israel. It was God who gave Jacob his new name, Israel. Back in Genesis chapter 32, God told Jacob, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So if God is giving or gave Jacob a new name, Israel, I would expect if he's appearing, he would say, Israel, Israel. But no, God says here, he calls out Jacob and he says, Jacob, Jacob. Well, I think there are probably two reasons why God refers to his servant as Jacob. The first is that oftentimes the original name Jacob is used to stress Jacob in his moment of weakness. And so perhaps God is sensing and identifying that Jacob is weak. He's confused. He he uses the name Jacob to show comfort to show encouragement, reassurance. I, again, can't help but think of Jesus. When Jesus was with uh, Simon Peter, Jesus asked the the disciples, who do do people say that I am? And so uh, the disciples said, you know, some call you Elijah. But then Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you think I am? And Peter got up and said, you know, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And you remembered what Jesus said to Simon Peter when he he uttered those words. He said in Matthew chapter 16, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros. For on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Jesus is saying, you're no longer Simon. You are Peter. You're the rock. And on on this rock, I will build my church. But of course, Peter didn't seem like he was that rock when he denied Jesus three times. And when Jesus wanted to restore Peter in John chapter 21, after they had eaten breakfast, what does he say to Peter? Peter didn't even probably want to look into the eyes of Jesus. But but Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Not Peter, but Simon. And so I think it's actually significant that God is calling out to Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. He's acknowledging Jacob's frailty, his confusion, perhaps his fearfulness. The second reason, I think, is that I think from here on out, 
there is a general sense that the name Jacob emphasizes the individual, while the name Israel highlights the corporate identity that he embodies. So even when you see here in verse 1 that Israel started the journey, Israel worshipped, there is a sense of the singular, but there's also the sense that Israel, he's representing his entire household. It's his entire household that's going on the journey. He's worshiping on behalf or in representation of his entire household. So God appears to Jacob for the first time, perhaps, in over 20 years, and he calls out his name, Jacob, Jacob. He continues in verse 3, God does, and he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. This is the fourth fear not oracle of God in the book of Genesis. So God gives four oracles where he begins the oracle with fear not. He does it it for the first time with Abraham in Genesis 15. Interesting, the second time he does this is for Hagar in Genesis 21, where Hagar is fleeing. He's sent away from Sarah, from Abraham, and God appears to Hagar to reassure her, to comfort her, and begins with the oracle, fear not. And the third time God appears and gives a fear not oracle to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. And he gives that oracle to Isaac in the context of famine and to reassure him that that God is there, that he will be blessed. Now, why would Jacob be afraid at this time? Well, Spurgeon, when he was teaching this passage, he gives at least four reasons. Reason number one, Jacob is old. (laughs) He's not in the prime of his life anymore. He's probably 130 years old. Some of you in this room who are a little bit younger, if you were given the opportunity to move out of California, you would probably jump at the opportunity. A new, new state, new country, new location, new food, new culture. Uh, If you're going to make a change or transition, this is the time to do it. But Jacob is not a young man anymore. He's not single like he was 50 years ago. He is an old man. And so change like this is not easy. And so to make this change, to make the decision for this change, for this resettlement, is worrisome. It can instill anxiety. Well, secondly, Jacob is making a decision to relocate, to resettle his family to an idolatrous country, to a pagan nation. Jacob had already seen the negative influences that Canaan had on his family. At this time, he's probably built hedges, protective hedges, against these influences. But now to uproot his entire family and to bring them to Egypt, you'd have to start those protective hedges or create those areas of protection again. Third, Jacob remembers the painful legacy of Egypt. The painful legacy of Egypt. 
Egypt is not something that creates positive response or, or memories when, when Jacob thinks of, of Egypt. One of Abraham's lowest points was when there was famine, he leaves the promised land without any commandment by God, and he goes to Egypt, and what, what did he do? He, he lied to, to Egypt that his wife was his sister. And so that was an, a low point in his life. You remember, too, that Hagar, Hagar, which that whole situation fractured, in many ways, his family. Hagar was an Egyptian handmaid to Sarah. And so he's probably thinking, you know, we brought Egypt, Egyptians into our family, and it created one of the biggest problems in my grandfather's family. And he probably recalled that his father had told him that when there was famine, I was thinking about going to Egypt, but God appeared to me and says in Genesis chapter 26, verse 2, do not go down to Egypt. That is not my command. That is not my will for you. Jacob understood that. And I think fourthly, Jacob probably understood Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. So God in Genesis 15 had appeared to Abraham to reassure Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, is that familiar verse where it says that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, later on that chapter, Abraham is still telling God, like, you know what, how, how do I know for sure what you're saying is true? And so God appears to reassure Abraham. But what did he tell Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13? Let me read. Then Yahweh said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and there they will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So Jacob must have had some understanding that God had promised his grandfather that there's going to come a time that your family is going to be in a foreign land, you will be sojourners there, and you will be slaves there, and you will be oppressed for 400 years. And I'm sure Jacob must have thought, is this really the best decision? Am I leading my family against God's will and will suffer consequences, punishment perhaps, for this decision? So Jacob had trust in God, in the character of God. The doubt and uncertainty is whether or not this decision to uproot his family to Egypt, is this a wise decision? Is this a godly decision? And so God senses this. God knows this. Just as we had learned earlier this morning, God, God knows all our needs before we even need express or even utter a prayer of that need. And you would think that God would have revealed this to Jacob while he was still in Hebron. But he waits 
until he's already committed to move to Egypt. God makes four promises to Jacob here in these first few verses. I'll just list them very quickly, but they're in these verses. Number one, I will make you a great nation. Number two, I will go down with you to Egypt. Number three, I will also bring you up out of Egypt back to Canaan again. And fourthly, he promises that it is going to be Joseph's hand that will close your eyes. So basically, that's a promise that not only will you see Joseph, Joseph will never leave you again. He will be with you until you die. He will be the one that physically can put his hands on your face and close your eyes. I'm going to flip back to Genesis chapter 28 by way of review. Genesis chapter 28 in verse 10. And just to set things in context, this is Jacob now fleeing from Beersheba to Haran because of the anger of Esau. So Genesis chapter 28, uh, I'm just going to read in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed." Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I think there's striking parallel between Genesis 28 when God appeared to Jacob the first time and here in chapter 46. First, in terms of similarities, God is promising or giving promises to Jacob and to, in the ESV, it's translated, his offspring. His offspring. The the word here that's translated offspring is the Hebrew word Sarah. Sarah. And it literally means seed. It's an interesting word in the Hebrew because it is what we call a collective singular. We have some collective singulars in the English language. So these are words that are in the singular form, but generally gives a concept of a collective. So for example, things that come to mind, I think fish, right? You have one fish, you have many fish. So in the English language, there, there's no fishes. <laughs> so where, where you see it, one fish or, or multiple fish, uh, you call it fish. So what God is promising both in chapter 28 and here is that this is a promise to you and to your seed, to your offspring. But there are other similarities. God had foreordained this move from 
Beersheba to Haran. And similarly, God is foreordaining this move from Beersheba down to Egypt. God has promised his presence to Jacob both times. I am with you. I will never leave you. And God promises in both occasions that he will bring Jacob back to this promised land. He had promised Jacob in Genesis 28, I will be with you and I will bring you back. And similarly here in 46, chapter 46, God promises to bring Jacob back. But there are some differences too, aren't there? For one, in Genesis 28, he was younger, he was single, he traveled alone. Didn't have a donkey, didn't have anything except, I think, a staff. I don't know if he even had a sack, but he traveled alone with nothing. Now, he's traveling with an entire family, wagons, plenty of supplies and provision. In Genesis 28, Jacob's worship was conditional. Remember? It was conditional. Jacob said in Genesis 28, if God is with me, and if you keep me and follow me on the way, then you will be my God. He made a condition. So he said to God, I will worship you. I will make you my God only if you hold to these promises. But here, he worships God unconditionally. He worshiped God before he received this vision. God is his God, and he has now reached a level of maturity that he can worship God amidst all circumstances. And I think the application to us is this. The man of God will worship despite all life's predicaments. And so the question I would ask each of us here in this room, do we worship God in all situations? Well, let's go to the second section. And before you get nervous, the, the next sections aren't going to be as long <laughs> as the first section. The second section, Jacob believed. We're going to look in verse 5 to 7. So in verse 5, it reads, the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father. This verb carried, it has the imagery of lifting up. So it really does have both a literary and figurative meaning of carrying, lifting up, bringing up. So like Abraham migrating from Ur in the Chaldeans to Canaan, Jacob is bringing his entire family, but being so old, he's actually having the aid of his family, his sons, to carry him to Egypt. Again, a natural question we would probably ask is, what is God's purpose for this relocation, for this settlement? Well, to review, there are probably at least three reasons. The first is that this is going to be God's plan to keep Israel holy to keep Israel a separate people. It's going to protect them from the sinfulness and the pervasiveness of sin in Canaan. Second, this move is going to prosper Israel. We're going to see that Goshen is going to be a land that is extremely fertile, and it will be God's conduit of blessing to Israel. 
But I think the third and the most important reason is that by moving Israel to Egypt, this is going to prepare Israel for worship and service. Think with me. It's going to be 400 plus years later when God will deliver Israel from the Egyptians. We sometimes refer to this as the Exodus. And the Exodus is perhaps the most clear picture of salvation in the Old Testament. God is secondly also going to use Israel as a means of judging the Canaanite people. But in God's patience, he needs to wait for the fullness of sin to develop before that judgment. So he's preparing Israel even for service to pronounce divine judgment on Canaan. But thirdly, God is preserving the seed of Israel, the Sarah of Israel. Follow with me the theme of the seed. The first time we encounter this is in Genesis 3.15. Remember that after Adam and Eve had sinned, God had pronounced judgment, discipline, and he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So God was promising, because Adam and Eve obviously can hear what God is telling Satan. God is prophesying that one day there will be a seed that comes out of, of the human race that will crush your head. Then in Genesis chapter 4, after the incident with Cain and Abel, Eve has another son. And it says in Genesis chapter 4, Eve gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has set for me another seed in place of Abel. As a mother, when she saw Cain and Abel in the incident, it was partly the loss of Abel, but it was also the threat that God's promise would not be fulfilled. Because as the mother, she couldn't have imagined that the seed would come through Cain. So when she has another child, she praises God and she praises God for saying that God has provided me another seed. In Genesis chapter 9, after Noah came out of the ark and had worshipped, God said to, to Noah, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. Even when God first gave his Abrahamic covenant promises to Abram, he said in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, Yahweh appearing to Abram said, to your seed, I will give this land. And after Abram had offered to offer Isaac on Mount Moriah, what did God tell Abraham then? He said to Abraham, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand on which are the seashore, and your seed 
shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have indeed heard my voice. What God is promising to Jacob once again, I'm going to be with you, but the promise is I'm going to remain faithful to you and to your seed, to your offspring. In the New American Standard, this word is often pronounced as descendants, but it is a collective singular, the Hebrew word Sarah. Well, let's go to the third section here, Jacob surrounded. And we read, or you heard me struggle to read through this list of 60 to 70 names. I just want to highlight a few things. We're not going to look at this genealogy in detail, but just a few notes of observation. First, I think it's interesting to note that even though Dinah is the only daughter that is mentioned by name, I think we can safely assume that Jacob actually had more than one daughter. And we can make that assumption because we never studied this as a group, but in Genesis chapter 34, when Shechem, who had violated Dinah, they had made an agreement or a proposal to Jacob's family. And the proposal is that you can marry our daughters and we will marry your daughters in the plural. It doesn't seem to make sense to have that agreement if Jacob only had one daughter, Dinah. Another observation in this genealogy is that only one woman is given the title of Jacob's wife. Did you guys get that? And who was it? Rachel. Rachel. Rachel is the only one that's actually given the title here in Genesis chapter 46 as Jacob's wife. Third, there is quite a few differences between Benjamin's genealogy in verse 21 and parallel passages in the book of Numbers, specifically Numbers chapter 26 and 1 Chronicles chapter 7. And in fact, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, it has the same 10 names, but it ascribes different relationships. It lists three of the men as his sons, six as his grandsons, and one as his great-grandson. There are some that doubt, like, how in this short period of time could Benjamin have 10 sons by the time they are making their trip to Egypt? There are a lot of different theories, but I think suffice to say that the purpose of this genealogy isn't necessarily to give the most precise details of the family tree. But one thing that seems to be an effort that the author makes in this genealogy, and that's the pattern of the number seven. Look with me that when it lists the descendants of Leah, it says there are 33 descendants. And of Zippah, there were 16. So 33 plus 16 equals 49, which is seven times seven. Rachel's lineage had 14 descendants. So 14 is two times seven. And the line of Bilhah, there were seven descendants. And so if you add 49 plus 14 plus seven, 
you get the number 70. We know in the Hebrew Old Testament that the number seven has important significance. It has the, the figure of completeness, of fullness. And so I think part of the reason that we get this list here is that everyone comes. The fullness of Jacob's family comes. And even though 70 is a small number, an embryonic number, but it is the fullness of his entire family that comes. I think there's three things anytime we read genealogies, but especially here in Genesis 46, that we can get out of this listing of names. First, when we read genealogies like this, it gives us, again, the affirmation that the story, that this account is historically true. When you read Greek mythology, you don't read extensive genealogies because the stories in Greek mythology are not historically true. But reading genealogies and the names of every single person and to see the significance of that later in scripture, it affirms that the story isn't just interesting, it's true. Second, I had alluded to that this really points, especially with the number of seven, the fullness of Jacob's family. But third, and perhaps I think an even important, more important reason is that this genealogy provides the backdrop to validate God's prophecy of the coming Messiah. Think with me. When we see in scripture that one day the Messiah is going to come from the line of Judah, from the line of David, how does one see the significance of that prophecy? Well, you can only see the significance of that prophecy if the genealogies are recorded. So if the Hebrew author here does not record genealogies, you're not going to have a record that 1,800 years later that Christ will come through the line of Judah. I think genealogies in some ways is another miracle and grace of God. I don't think I know past three generations above me who I'm a descendant of. Perhaps if I had a, a parent or a grandparent you know, who kept track of everything, maybe I can get back to the fifth, sixth, or seventh generation. I know some people in the United States, they have a family tree that could even go back you know, 200, 300, maybe even 400 years. But 1,800 years, 4,000 years, and now, to the best of my knowledge, in modern Israel, there aren't reliable genealogies that continue to this day. You, you go to Israel and you ask, you know, are you of the line of, of the tribe of Benjamin? I don't think anyone can confidently trace back their lineage. But somehow in God's providence, he, he preserved these genealogies in his people and it is another way of pointing to the ultimate seed, which is Christ. Well, let's look at the fourth section of this chapter, Jacob reunited. And we pick this up in verse 28. And it says, when he, that is Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way. 
we see here yet again that Judah is now the appointed leader of the family. Judah is sent by Jacob, and it's the same way back in Genesis chapter 37 when, when Jacob had sent Joseph to get a report from his brothers. Jacob is sending his, his son Joseph at that time for a mission. He sends Judah now here for a mission. He says that he's sending Judah ahead to Joseph. In the ESV, it reads, to show the way before him in Goshen. Now, this phrase is actually a difficult phrase to translate. The Hebrew verb that's translated here to show the way, it means to instruct, to teach, to communicate information. And this verb is used 46 times in the Old Testament, but almost every time it corresponds with a direct object. I am going to teach and instruct something. But here in this verse, there is no direct object in the original text. So already, it's difficult for us to understand what instruction is being ascertained here. I think another way to translate verse 28 is this. We can translate it as, and Jacob sent Judah before him to Joseph in order that Judah might show Joseph the way to Jacob in Goshen. So one way of looking at this verse is that Jacob's family, they're now on their way, they've left Beersheba, they somehow instinctively know that they are going to Goshen. And so Judah is sent to separate from his family to go to Joseph alone and to give instruction, basically the directions of where dad and the family are. So in order that Judah might show Joseph the way to Jacob in Goshen, and then at the end of the verse it says, they arrive in the land of Goshen. And we see then in verse 29, once Judah gives Joseph the news of where their family is, in verse 29 it reads, Joseph presented himself to him. So he gets his chariots, he gets to him quickly. He meets Jacob and it says, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And we had covered this earlier that this imagery of falling on someone's neck to weep it is an intense display of emotion. It happened with Jacob and Esau, and it happened with Joseph and Benjamin. And here, this is now Joseph and his father, Jacob. I think we should note here in verse 29, it is not explicitly clear that the display of emotion was mutual. I would think that just as Joseph and Benjamin had mutually wept with each other, that because Jacob and Joseph obviously love each other, that the emotion of this reunion would be mutual. And I'm sure Jacob had longed for this day, but the text actually does not say that, that Jacob uh, weeps and puts his head on his, uh, his son's neck. But what Jacob does say in verse 30, I think is significant. In verse 30, after 
Joseph had wept for a good while or a long time, Joseph or Israel says to Joseph, now let me die. Now let me die. Jacob is now ready to die. I'm going to flip to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. So Luke chapter 2 is, at least the earlier part, is the Christmas story, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. The parents bring Jesus to the temple. And picking up in verse 25, it reads, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I mean, can you picture this? So Mary and Joseph, they bring their firstborn son into the temple. And here's this presumably elderly man, a stranger. I'm sure somehow he must have known somehow that this was the moment. He recognizes that the fulfillment to the prophecy is this baby boy. <laughs> he grabs the boy <laughs> and he utters this profound exclamation, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What was Simeon saying? He was saying, now I can die because my eyes have seen the salvation. We are ready to die when our eyes have seen God's salvation. That's how we are prepared to die. Well, let's finish up this chapter as our time is running out. The final four verses, Jacob settled. Notice what Joseph does. So he probably recomposes himself. And he says in verse 31, I will go up and tell Pharaoh. And so this implies that he will need to report to Pharaoh everything that's happened. He highlights that his family are shepherds and keepers of livestock. They had been doing this for quite some time, which is obviously true. I do think that this designation of their occupation is very important. Three things to think about. First, understand that the Egyptians had always wanted to segregate themselves from Hebrews and especially Hebrew shepherds. I mean, the text says that shepherds are an abomination to Egypt. Back in Genesis chapter 43, remember when Joseph had that luncheon feast, the Egyptians wanted to eat by themselves because they didn't want to eat with the Hebrews because that was an abomination to them. 
One commentator even notes that when you look at Egyptian paintings and artwork, you will rarely find any pictures of shepherds in Egyptian art because they did not care for shepherds. And so this is already a start of honesty and transparency because the implications of them explaining themselves as shepherds is not, at least in an earthly way, appealing. So the Egyptians, they don't care for Hebrews, and especially Hebrew shepherds. But secondly, though, by designating their occupation, this, in God's providence, will actually encourage Pharaoh to grant them the land of Goshen. So see what Joseph's family are doing. They are obviously bringing themselves. They are escorted or aided by these wagons, and they bring their entire herd. They bring their entire livestock. And we had said that as shepherds, the most important thing of your livelihood is your livestock. If you're a beekeeper, the most important thing about your business is the bees. You're a shepherd, you're a herdsman, your most valuable possession are your livestock. And so they bring their livestock. And so what they're showing to the people of Israel and to the king of Israel is that we don't want to be a burden to you. We don't want to just leech off of your kingdom. They were not looking for jobs. They were not looking, in a sense, directly for food. They could have the food, but they need land that could sustain their herd to provide them with food and sustenance. So by designating their occupation, they will show to Pharaoh and encourage Pharaoh to grant them the land of Goshen. And thirdly, by designating their occupation, Pharaoh and his courts will not be threatened by Joseph's family because it will show that Joseph's family have no interest in political power or influence. So understand here that even though it was easy for Pharaoh's court and for Pharaoh himself to be pleased with Joseph, because Joseph had interpreted this very important dream that was, and it was going to set the wheels in motion to save their entire nation. Without Joseph, there will be no more Egypt. But I'm sure some of the people who are not fond of Hebrews, if they were to hear, oh, Joseph is now bringing his family of 70 people, what are these 70 people going to do? Are they going to all of a sudden take political office and change and influence the, the nation of Egypt? And so what Joseph is saying is that, let's make very clear, you guys are all shepherds, we are shepherds, we've been shepherds for all this time, and we will remain shepherds. Joseph had no intention of showing nepotism and placing his family in any position of power. Martin Luther on this verse says that herdsmen and shepherds were regarded as being in the lowest station of life, and like executioners, butchers, and hangmen, they are not admitted to public office or honorable social gatherings. In other words, what Luther is saying is that based on his study, if the Egyptians had heard that these are shepherds, they are no threat to 
people of power because no Egyptian is going to want someone who is a shepherd to be of any influence or any high social gathering. Well, we're going to study next week how Pharaoh responds to this. But just to conclude our time, I want to offer us just three simple applications. So the first application for us is that we need to worship God when life is unclear and uncertain. Jacob offered his sacrifices of thanksgiving when his direction was uncertain, and so should we. Second, trust God and your belief will lead to action. Trust God and your belief will lead to action. I think many of us, and me especially, we think that trusting God and being patient with God is to remain still until God brings some powerful force that propels us to action. If that's what Jacob would have done or did, he would have been, he would have been stuck in Hebron. He acted. And the sovereign God, once we act, he will direct our path. You remember the apostle Paul when he went on his missionary journeys. He just kept on going. Even though he was the apostle, he really didn't know at certain times exactly where God would have him to go. He would go one way, God might send an angel and say, don't go here, go there. But he was moving. Paul was always moving. He was always acting. And so should you. Trust God and act as you believe. And finally, the third application, live for God and you will be prepared to die. Live for God, and you will be prepared to die. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 should be familiar to many of you. The Apostle Paul said, you know, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To be able to say to die is gain can only come from a true believer who has tasted God's free gift of salvation. And so it's not that we're preparing for martyrdom. It's not that we have to mentally be prepared that when we drive out of the church today, we might get into a car accident and die. But may we be like Jacob and Simeon and say, let your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you love us and you provide for us everything that we need, including direction and clarity. Father, help us to follow the example of Jacob, that even when life is uncertain, where there is predicament, that we would worship you in, in confidence, with enthusiasm, with gratitude, because you are a God that is in control and worthy of our praise. Help us to trust you, Father. Help us not to be so fearful that we are paralyzed with inactivity. Help us to act and trust that 
If you need us to steer a different way, you'll gently do that. But most importantly, Father, help us to live for you. Help us to know that we have one life to live and that if we live fully for you as our Lord, that if you do take our life, that we are prepared to die. Father, I pray that we will live this out as we go out into the world, to school, um, to our, our neighbors, our community, and help us to continue to be salt and light for you. We thank you again for giving us your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen.